Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iFormerX podcast, and I want to thank you for being a member of the iFormerX community. And if you haven't already officially joined iFormerX as a member, I encourage you to head on over to iFormerX.org and sign up today. It's free to all health professionals, as well as students, residents, and fellows. In this episode, we're going to talk about hyperkalemia and how best to respond to elevated serum potassium levels. While renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS inhibitors, are among the most important in our drug therapy armamentarium, they are widely used for a variety of indications their use is often limited by hyperkalemia. Not only is their use contraindicated when a patient's serum potassium is elevated at baseline, but they often cause a significant bump in serum potassium levels after they've been started, which then leads to treatment discontinuation in many patients. However, serum potassium levels fluctuate from day to day. And there are several factors that can influence the development of hyperkalemia. So it's not always clear what the best approach might be. Indeed, the results of a recent iFormerX poll suggest there isn't a consensus as to what is the best course of action to take. Many of our members recommended a drug should be stopped when a patient develops hyperkalemia. Others recommended a lower dose and still others recommended a wait-and-see approach. So that's why a study published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease caught my eye because it provides some data about what happens when a RAS inhibitor is either continued or discontinued after an episode of hyperkalemia. And I've invited Dr. Michelle Fravel from the University of Iowa to write a commentary about this paper and to participate in today's podcast. Shelley is a clinical pharmacist specialist in ambulatory care and practices at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, specifically in the renal hypertension clinic where she takes care of patients with chronic kidney disease, polycystic kidney disease, and of course, many of those patients have type 2 diabetes. So this is a very clinically relevant problem that Dr. Fravel and her colleagues encounter nearly every single day, and hopefully this study shed some light on how best to manage patients who develop hyperkalemia while taking a RAS inhibitor. Shelley, it's so great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Stuart. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to talking about this important paper. So Shelley, I'd like to start our discussion today by setting some context. As, as I mentioned, RAS inhibitors are widely used for a number of indications, but we have lots of other blood pressure lowering medications available. So what if a patient develops hyperkalemia? We can just switch them to another class of medications, right? I know I'm being a little flip, but there are plenty of good reasons why we would want to continue a RAS inhibitor whenever possible. So what's so special about RAS inhibitors and why are they considered the backbone of therapy for so many different indications and patient populations? Well, the term RAS inhibitors refers to medications which inhibit the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Classes of medications which fall into this category include 
angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACEs, angiotensin-2 receptor blockers, or ARBs, direct renin inhibitors, for example, atlaskyrin, and aldosterone antagonists, including both spironolactone and aplerinone. As a brief reminder of the main role of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, it is primarily involved in the regulation of sodium, potassium, fluid volume, and blood pressure. While the RAS serves a critical function in maintaining vascular tone, sodium balance, and cardiac function, overactivity of RAS has been implicated in numerous disease states, including hypertension, coronary artery disease, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease. For this reason, RAS inhibitors are the cornerstone of therapy for many kidney and heart diseases. In the early 2000s, multiple trials were undertaken to evaluate the benefit of RAS inhibition with ACE inhibitors and ARBs, specifically in patients with chronic kidney disease. In the Ramipril Efficacy and Nephropathy, or REIN study, R-E-I-N, a trial evaluating patients with CKD randomized to Ramipril or placebo plus conventional antihypertensive therapy, Ramipril use was associated with reduced proteinuria and reduced EGFR decline. In a second trial, the renal, R-E-N-A-A-L study, patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD were randomized to losartan or placebo in addition to conventional antihypertensive therapy. In this study, similar to the REN study, losartan use was associated with reduced proteinuria and reduced EGFR decline. And one final example, the IDNT, or Herbisartan Diabetic Nephropathy Trial. Patients with diabetic nephropathy were randomized to Herbisartan, amlodipine, or placebo. Herbisartan use was associated with a 33% reduction in proteinuria compared to only a 6% reduction with amlodipine and a 10% reduction with placebo. Furthermore, participants receiving Herbisartan had a 23% lower risk for the primary composite outcome of doubling serum creatinine onset of end-stage renal disease or all-cause mortality compared to amlodipine or placebo. These landmark trials led to guideline recommendations for use of ACEs and ARBs in patients with CKD, both with and without diabetes. More recent studies have been done to evaluate the impact of ACE-ARB dosing to confirm that benefits are actually dose-dependent. Therefore, the highest approved dose that is tolerated is recommended. Finally, dual therapy has also been investigated with the results of those trials making it clear that the use of ACEs and ARBs in combination with each other or with direct renin inhibitors is not beneficial and instead leads to increased risk of harm, including increased hyperkalemia and acute kidney injury. So let's talk about the study that you've reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. Unfortunately, the study doesn't have a clever acronym, but it, it's entitled hyperkalemia-related discontinuation of renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors and clinical outcomes in CKD, a population-based cohort study. And as I mentioned, the, the study was published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease, or AJKD, in August 2022, and we provide a link to the paper on our website. But I'm hoping you can give us a brief summary of the study methods and the results. Yeah, this was a retrospective cohort study comparing the rate of adverse clinical outcomes in patients with CKD who continued versus discontinued their RAS inhibitor therapy after experiencing RAS inhibitor-related hyperkalemia. Participants were identified within two separate data sets in Canada, one in Manitoba and one in Ontario, between 2007 and 2016. 
Participants were included in the trial if they had CKD and experienced hyperkalemia, which was defined as a potassium level equal to or greater than 5.5 milliequivalents per liter while receiving a RAS inhibitor. Patients were excluded if they were receiving dialysis, had received a kidney transplant, had less than one year of observation prior to their episode of hyperkalemia, or had a potassium level equal to or greater than 10 milliequivalents per liter. Additionally, participants were excluded if they did not survive 90 days following their hyperkalemic episode. This was a strategy employed to allow the study outcomes to be attributed to RAS inhibitor discontinuation rather than the hyperkalemic episode itself. Patients were defined as RAS inhibitor continuers if they had an active prescription at day 90 after the hyperkalemic episode and discontinuers if they did not. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality. Secondary outcomes included cardiovascular mortality, a composite of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events, and initiation of dialysis. A total of 7,200 patients from the Manitoba cohort and 71,290 patients from the Ontario cohort were included in the analysis. Mean EGFR was just over 40 for both cohorts. Transitioning to results, there was a 32% increased risk of all-cause mortality associated with RAS inhibitor discontinuation in the Manitoba cohort and a 47% increased risk in the Ontario cohort. Risk of all secondary outcomes, so to remind you, that's cardiovascular mortality, fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events, and initiation of dialysis, was significantly increased in the RAS discontinuation group for both cohorts as well. A secondary analysis was performed to examine the effect of RAS inhibitor dose. In this analysis, an increased risk for all adverse study outcomes except for dialysis initiation was seen with submaximal versus maximal RAS inhibitor dosing. However, submaximal RAS inhibitor dosing was associated with better outcomes compared to complete discontinuation. So as you indicated, and as the title of the paper clearly states, this is a retrospective population-based cohort study. And and retrospective cohort studies are prone to confounders that can impact the results. What did the authors do in this particular study to try and control for these potential confounders? Yes, the main limitation of the study is its retrospective nature, allowing for the possibility of unmeasured confounders. In practice, there are a variety of patient-specific factors that may lead a prescriber to continue versus discontinue RAS inhibitor therapy, which may also be associated with the primary and secondary outcomes in question. One approach the authors took to try to control for potential confounders was the completion of a matched propensity score analysis. In this analysis, outcomes were evaluated for a subset of patients matched on the basis of age, sex, baseline EGFR, baseline comorbidities, and concomitant baseline medications. This analysis helps to address the concern that those who discontinued RAS inhibitors were perhaps less healthy than continuers at baseline, which could have influenced the improved outcomes in those that continued their RAS inhibitor rather than an effect of the RAS inhibitor therapy itself. Although still at risk for unmeasured confounders, the confirmation of the main findings in the secondary analysis provides some assurance that the RAS inhibitor continuers and discontinuers were similar. Additionally, undertaking the analysis in two separate cohorts, so both Manitoba and Ontario, and finding similar results provides additional confidence. 
In addition to unmeasured confounders, another limitation is the lack of information related to the occurrence of non-mortality-related adverse effects in the group that continued RAS inhibitor therapy. A report of dysrhythmia occurrence, emergency room visits, and hospitalizations would have provided a more broad view of the pros and cons associated with RAS inhibitor continuation versus discontinuation. Finally, no information was provided related to the strategies used to manage hyperkalemia and the group of continued RAS inhibitor therapy. This is an important aspect when considering implementation of the findings into clinical practice. Despite these limitations, there are several strengths of the study. The topic is very clinically relevant, as we've already highlighted today. Additionally, the study includes a very large sample size and provides information on clinically meaningful outcomes rather than surrogate markers of disease. Finally, the analysis examining dose on outcomes is very meaningful for clinical implementation purposes. So, Shelley, just a couple of weeks ago, as you know, the Stop ACE I study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that study was a randomized control trial where the enrolled patients who had either stage four or five CKD, and they were randomized to continue the ACE or ARB that they had been receiving, or they discontinued it. And and I'm wondering what the rationale for conducting this study might have been. Been because on the surface, it seems potentially unethical to purposefully stop a RAS inhibitor in patients with CKD. And second, how do the results of the STOP ACE-I study compare to the retrospective cohort study that we've just been talking about? The STOP ACE-I trial randomized 411 patients with advanced and progressive CKD, defined as EGFR less than 30 with a decrease of more than 2 mL per minute per year in the previous two years, who were already taking ACE or ARP therapy to either continue or discontinue therapy. I think it's important to note the hypothesis the investigators were evaluating, which was that discontinuation of RAS inhibitors would actually improve kidney function. Now, you asked about whether or not this trial was even ethical, Stuart, and the working hypothesis of this trial really highlights the point that we actually don't have much evidence for use of RAS inhibitors in this specific population, that is, patients with advanced and progressive CKD. The landmark trials supporting the use of RAS inhibitors to slow progression of CKD included mainly patients with mild or moderate CKD. In practice, it's really not clear whether or not the risks of RAS inhibitor therapy in patients with late-stage CKD So the slight reduction that you see in EGFR with these agents and the increased risk of hyperkalemia, it's just not clear if that outweighs the benefit at these late stages. And as such, these theories exist that discontinuation of ACEs and ARBs may actually improve outcomes in those with very advanced disease. While observational studies support this idea and have shown an increase in EGFR with discontinuation of RAS inhibitors in patients with late stages of CKD, No randomized controlled trials have been done to confirm these findings. The primary outcome of the STOP-ACE-I trial was EGFR at three years. Secondary outcomes included an array of clinical outcomes, such as initiation of dialysis, a composite of more than 50% decrease in the EGFR, hospitalization for any cause, cystatin C and blood pressure levels, quality of life, exercise capacity, cardiovascular events, and death. The study found no difference in the primary outcome between groups, so EGFR decline was similar whether the RAS inhibitor was continued or discontinued. Furthermore, there were no meaningful differences in secondary endpoints between the groups. 
as the trial was empowered to draw conclusions regarding clinical outcomes, such as cardiovascular events or mortality, the take-home message from STOP-ASI is that RAS inhibitor discontinuation in advanced CKD does not provide meaningful benefit in terms of EGFR improvement. The jury is still out regarding the impact of continuation versus discontinuation on clinical outcomes in this population. So the study does not support the practice of RAS inhibitor discontinuation once CKD reaches an advanced stage. In terms of comparing stop ASI to the retrospective cohort study we've been discussing, a significant difference is the stage of CKD and EGFR level among participants in each trial. While the retrospective cohort trial did include patients with advanced CKD, only approximately 20% of participants had an EGFR less than 30, and mean EGFR was close to 40. The STOP ASI trial included only participants with advanced CKD, and the mean EGFR was 17. In terms of comparing potassium levels, the mean level of potassium in the retrospective cohort was between 5.7 and 5.8, and in the STOP ASI trial, it was just 5.0. Another significant difference between studies was the primary outcome, with the retrospective cohort trial focusing primarily on adverse clinical outcomes associated with RAS inhibitor discontinuation, and the STOP-ASI focusing on a surrogate marker of disease progression, that is, change in EGFR. Despite these differences, the two trials certainly do complement one another, as both provide information regarding the same clinical challenge. Should we or should we not work to continue use of RAS inhibitors in patients with CKD who may be at higher risk of RAS inhibitor adverse effects, either due to hyperkalemia, as evaluated in the retrospective cohort, or due to advanced disease, as in the STOP-ASI trial? Although neither study provides conclusive evidence, both studies provide helpful information to guide our therapy decisions and practice. Well... I, I guess that leads to my next question, which is what is the bottom line if my patient develops hyperkalemia while taking an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or an aldosterone antagonist, what should I do? What do you do in your practice, Shelley? Should I take a wait and see approach and recheck the labs in a week or two? Should I cut the dose or should I just go ahead and stop the RAS inhibitor and move on to another class of drugs? Great question, Stuart. As you mentioned earlier, the variety of responses to the I4MRX polling question on this topic proves that this is a challenging clinical situation without a clear approach for all patients. The study makes the case that continuation of RAS inhibitor therapy despite hyperkalemia results in improved clinical outcomes in a dose-dependent manner. So when our patients with CKD develop hyperkalemia while taking a RAS inhibitor, we should really challenge ourselves to consider other options for mitigation of hyperkalemia before we consider discontinuing or decreasing the dose of the RAS inhibitor. Implementing this concept in practice requires a tailored approach depending upon multiple patient-specific factors. In my practice, as a pharmacist on the team, my first step is to consider other medications the patient is taking that may be contributing to hyperkalemia. Examples include NSAIDs, beta blockers, and potassium supplements. It may seem silly to even consider that patients challenged with hyperkalemia would be taking potassium supplements, but in this trial, 5% of the patients in the Manitoba cohort were taking potassium supplements at baseline. Outside of hyperkalemic effects, NSAIDs should always be discontinued in patients with CKD due to nephrotoxicity. 
Despite this, OTC use is common, and this was seen in the trial with 11% of patients in the Ontario cohort taking NSAIDs at baseline. Medication lists of patients with chronic kidney disease are often extensive and very complicated. Conducting a detailed medication review and making recommendations to specifically target hyperkalemia is a critical first step. A second step is to pursue use of newer potassium binders, including pterimer and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. As these agents are brand name, pharmacists can be helpful in assisting with insurance coverage strategies. And given that they are available only as powders, pharmacists can also help by counseling and proper administration technique as well. Finally, it is important to acknowledge that some patients may not be able to adhere to the necessary potassium monitoring that is required to ensure safety with RAS inhibitor continuation in the setting of hyperkalemia. And in these cases, it may be decided that dose decrease or discontinuation of the RAS inhibitor is actually the best course. In these instances, consideration of alternate therapies shown to slow the progression of CKD with less risk of hyperkalemia may be considered, such as sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors or SGLT2 inhibitors, or for those with CKD and type 2 diabetes, venerinone, a newer non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. The bottom line is that the preferred strategy for management of RAS inhibitor therapy in a patient with CKD experiencing hyperkalemia requires a plan that is individualized to the patient's unique clinical situation. Well, Shelley, thank you so much for being on the iFormerX podcast again. And your insightful comments about the pros and cons of continuing RAS inhibitors in patients who might develop hyperkalemia. Well, what do you do, our audience members? What do you do in your practice? Be sure to leave a comment by visiting and logging into our website at iformrx.org. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn continuing education and board recertification credit by listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. The Literature Evaluation and Evidence-Based Practice Series available from the American Pharmacists Association is available online, on demand, anywhere, anytime. If you want to learn more about the APHA board prep and recertification programs, be sure to click on the link posted just below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to thank Michael Ernst, at the University of Iowa for his contributions to iFormerX over the years. As many of our listeners may know, Dr. Ernst works in family medicine and has done some of the pioneering and influential work with chlorothalidone for the treatment of hypertension. And more recently, his work has been related to drug therapy for cardiovascular diseases in older adults. Michael has contributed to iFormerX as an author, and a reviewer, and participated in podcasts, and he's invited his colleagues, trainees, and students to join iFormerX. He's the real deal, what many of us in academia call a triple threat, a true scholar, a superb clinician, and a caring educator. So thank you, Michael. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. <music>